Welcome to episode 247 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and Cara Black is returning to the podcast to talk about Night Flight to Paris, the follow-up to her previous book, Three Hours in Paris. Cara, welcome back to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we as you do your tour uh, to talk about Night Flight to Paris. And so I hope you'll answer some of my questions. Of course. Thank you for inviting me, Nancy. Well, my first question is, uh, this is the second book to feature Kate Rees. And um, you have a longstanding series with one of my favorite characters, Amy Leduc. And I was just wondering what called to you uh, to have a follow-up, not a, not a sequel necessarily, but a follow-up book featuring Kate. Sure. Well, that's a great question. So as you you know, know and we've talked about before, um, Three Hours in Paris takes place June 1940. It's right the, the cusp of, you know, two weeks after the Germans had entered and when Hitler came for only three hours to Paris which was a very little documented time. So it was giving me a lot of license to what Kate Reese, the sniper could do um, and what was plausible and what might've happened. So I, I, I know that, and I thought, you know, she's such a great character. She has this skill, you know, she can shoot. She's like born, born doing it as a little girl on the ranch and with all those brothers, she's just too, too good not to throw some more trouble at her. So I, I thought, what, what is the, you know, lesser known, what was happening? What would happen to her in the meantime? She got injured on a, a terrible failed mission in Denmark. She would have, um, have to go back and recuperate. And, and I needed her um, kind of out of the picture for quite a while due to an injury. And I have a great friend, um, Dr. Terry Haddix, who's a forensic pathologist. And I said, I want to put her out of commission so she can't teach rifle skills, rifle shooting uh, to prospective agents and operatives, but I want her to gain it back. And she said, well, that's simple. She'll break her arm, her good arm for shooting, and then someone will reset it terribly, you know, wrong. Um, and then she has to go back and have her arm broken again to reset it properly, uh, which takes lots of healing, but you can be okay. And so that gave her the time to be off picture, out of commission, still have the skill. And uh, so that's a long answer to your question. But so then I thought, where will she be? You know, at this time, it'll be 1942. Uh, you know, she's getting on her, kind of gotten on her feet, really likes what she does, has made a friend um, with, you know, the care caretaker's wife um and it's kind of like what would what could i throw at her next well we always talk about d-day and you know not that we shouldn't but what about the lesser theaters of war that were very important and so i sort of started reading about 1942 what was going on in the battle battles for italy you know which was hugely hugely important so i found operation torch which was where the Allies um, wanting to land, uh, well, Morocco was occupied by Vichy France, to land, to take it, to go to Algeria, and then to Tunisia, because the Germans, right, Rommel, the desert fox, was in Libya. And then the British were, you know, hanging on by a thread in Cairo and Egypt. And what the 
you know, allies thought, well, if we could pincer, pincer them, pincer them, and then go up land in Sicily and go up the boot of Italy, you know, the war would be shorter, right? To kind of meet the D-Day. It was really interesting because I didn't know a lot about Operation Torch. Well, I, I found it interesting. She, she of course, when she's snatched from her, um, where she's teaching other people uh, sniper skills and some other skills, she's sort of snatched from this comfortable place and she's not really told much. She's put on a plane and she's sent to France and things go awry. I don't want to spoil the story because it's so amazing. And she ends up in Egypt. And I thought two things. First of all, the, the part in Egypt was fascinating. But before we talk about that, how of little value she was to the people who were giving her assignments, how transactional um, her place and her value was. She was valuable if she could do something. If it went awry, not so valuable. And, and I thought that's really kind of a cautionary tale about espionage and about the kind of work that Kate was involved in. They were not coddled, <laughs> to put it mildly. Definitely, Nancy. Yeah, definitely. And that's a good point because um, I was talking with Naomi, you know, at uh, Romans when we talked and it was International Women's Day. There were thousands of women, young women who signed up to, uh, you know, to help as friends or field work or nurses or what ambulance drivers. And those who had really good like math skills could do crossword puzzles got sent towards the coding area. Of course, they were always called girls. They were never paid what the men were paid. They were looked down on. And Kate Middleton was very, you know, as a big, you know, talking about this. And she couldn't find the records for her grandmother because at the end of the war, they destroyed those records um, because girls were never considered to come back, you know, to be important. And, I, and that just sort of indicates, you know, um, and and what, but the, the character Sasha, who is in Signals Intelligence, who we meet in Cairo, Sasha is working for under the military intelligence. So that was a little different. And actually I found records or I read books about people who, who had done work similar to Sasha, Signals Intelligence. They used a lot of women who coded and decoded. And we're talking Morse code, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, they're out. They could be stationed in Cyprus or, you know, uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, communicate with a legion or with a legion, you know, a brigade in, in attacking Tripoli or something. And they had to be really on top of it. You know, they had to get the coding right because people's men's lives were, on, you know, the balance so that was very vital they were not creating code they were not agents in it they were technicians you know they were there passing and and making sure everything went through so those people all those women and there were thousands of them in different capacities signed the official secrets act you know which everyone did and you know you'd never talk about it and i found this book written by two british sisters and i think it came out oh maybe six or seven years ago and they each enlisted when they you know when war broke out they were like 18 and 19 years old and they were sent like to the wrens but they ended up because they were they used to love crossword puzzles they used to play chess with their grandfather so they were put in, into coding work signals intelligence 
accomplishes, but neither of them knew this. They worked, they did this, they had a long war, they were in different, one woman was in Cairo, one was in Syria. But anyway, at the end of the war, everyone survived, they came back, they got married, they had a family. In the early 2000s, I believe, their files became declassified because they were through military intelligence. And there they were, they'd been in the same branch, but different continents. And they had no idea, they'd never shared, they, you know, kept their mouth quiet. And, you know, um, and I just thought that was brilliant. I love the book. And I, and of course, it's, it's also about a young woman, you know, with all these guys, right? It's a different time and a party atmosphere in Cairo, and yet, you know, wanting to do a good job. And, and this, you know, I just love that. And, and just the way they were treated was so easy to see, you know, the the mentality. You know, women didn't fight in the battlefield. They were just kind of behind, even though they did this vital work. And so Kate is also sometimes just, you know, fodder. She has a use. And as you say, it, it's very transactional. She she and she and Sasha, uh, especially during the what happened in Cairo, which is uh you know, things go sideways as things often do. <clears throat> they're essentially told that they're expendable. Yep. And um, it, the reason I'm concentrating so much on this was uh, the other day I spoke to a writer, uh, Ama Katsu, who wrote a book called Red <laughs> London. Can't wait to read it. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty darn good. And we talked about this. We talked about women in these kinds of fields, how um, they are belittled and, uh, you know, looked down on. Um, if they do something great, it's just, a, it's a shrug. Uh, if they do something wrong, they're toast. And, and I read your, I read her book right after I read yours and I thought, God, what a pair. Uh, Lindsay Duncan, who is her CIA agent in London, and um, Kate Reese would have been because they they really were at the top of their game, both of them. And they both just got short shrift up, down and sideways. I doubt if there was a sniper of the same caliber and <laughs> pun intended as as Kate was, because uh, she was pretty astounding. And uh, I, I just find it interesting and I find it uh illuminating that uh, writers are looking at women's role in the war, specifically World War II. It's very important. So that's one reader's thank you to you for writing this. Sure. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was at Crime Fest in Bristol, you know, uh, the, the crime conference. And on the, one of the panels I was on, so this would have been pre-pandemic, there were many young women and they were writing this World War II fiction, you know, historic his, historical fiction or whatever it's called, and about women's roles. And I was like, it was fascinating. And what I thought, and of course I had to leave, I never got a chance to sit down with each of them and ask them, but I said, but I thought, so their grandmothers, no, it would be their great grandmothers. Maybe, you know, the stories were passed down. Well, why not, you know, passed down. Your mother would tell them with 
uh, what their grandmother, great grandmother had done, or some diary came to light, you know, because people kept diaries, they had letters, they had correspondence. And, and so maybe some of that is rippling down and being seen by a, another generation, you know, which, which I think is fat, fantastic, you know. Well, in the end, Kate, uh, who is remarkably good at her job, as we've said, does, is able to do what she is supposed to do, um, sort of. And I say that sort of. It's not exactly what she thought it was going to happen, but it was satisfactory. And, you know, once again, it her, her the, the people that she works for, their reaction to her was lukewarm. But the other thing that struck me about Kate in this book, two years on from Kate in the in three hours in Paris where she's just lost her husband and child and and she's raw, is in this book, she's she's hard. She's she gets it. She's not only a good marksman, but she is she is uh understands the game, doesn't help. Uh, but it, it it was nice to see that she was not uh, looking at it through rose-colored glasses either. Yeah, well, trust is, you know, Stephanie has always told her, trust no one, and that that is kind of the name of the game and what she's doing. You have to wear disguise. You can trust no one. Good people do bad things. Bad people do good things, you know. Uh, it, it happens. Things, circumstances change, and yet she can trust no one, yet for someone like her, she's basically a backwoods Oregon country gal. She just, you know, she wanted a, you know, she had her husband and her baby. I mean, she would like, she could go back and live on the ranch. She'll never get there with this new boats, but you know, that she cannot trust people. And I think that is got to be the hardest for anyone, you know, so that's kind of where she is in her kind of growth. How awful, you know, that you, you know, you you want to have a relationship. How do these people have relationships if they can't trust anyone, you know? And, and even the relationship that she did have in Denmark, which isn't really described in great detail, but the aftermath uh, is uh, she feels disillusioned. She thinks she finds out something about this man that she she thought she liked. and uh, And she just sort of threw up her hands and said, well, you know, trust no one. I can't trust this man. Um, I can't trust people that I thought were my friends and my and my allies. And 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 yet, uh, there's so much gray area. She finds some of who she thought would be as she goes through her tasks. Some of the people she thought would be enemies, uh, maybe not as bad as they they could be. You know, not necessarily Nazis, but there were also German officers that you know. Yeah, they, they probably weren't great people, but they weren't bad people either. They, you know, they were sort of stuck, just like she's stuck. That's I think that was one of the brilliant things about this particular story was everybody is struggling. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I and I think that was that was kind of the way it was for many people. You know, it's not just it's survival, but it's survival with kind of the odds against you, right? I mean, and you don't know maybe what the odds are, but you you're you know that they could take you out. Um, and uh, yeah, the the poets and the partisans um, 
I really was happy that they could be part of the story based on a group of Armenian Jewish communists. Okay, there's three strikes against them. They're, <laughs> you know, they're, yeah, well, Eastern, let's say they're not all, I mean, Eastern European Jewish communists. I mean, they were totally, no one liked them. <laughs> But they took care of business. Um, they were they were and they were caught and uh, executed um, during the war. But that became a big cause célèbre because they were uh, the red poster, the FTP MOI. This was quite famous, and actually, um, they were again, you know, just some a group with three strikes against them, and they were kind of like, let's just go take care of business. You know, <laughs> we we're kind of. I mean, it was very interesting. They had this sort of very fatalistic, true, uh, ver you know, look at what, you know, if I'm going to fight and I have ideals and I think this is wrong, I'll go for it. Why do you think it's important for us to read stories about World War II? We've already talked about why it's important to read about stories featuring women in World War II, but why is it instructive for us to immerse ourselves in stories that happened, you know, a couple of lifetimes ago. Definitely. Yeah, it's been 80 years since the end of World War II. Um, but I, you know, and I think you and I have talked about it before. I think you had family that served. I know I did. Um, and they're gone now. Um, but, and a lot of the stories of my family who served, I didn't hear until I was an adult, you know, and they never told them to me. It was, their mouth was quiet for whatever reason, for whatever they witnessed, whatever they did. Um, and so they never talked about it. Um, it was years later that I heard these stories. Um, and a friend of mine, his father was one of the first um, soldiers, Americans, to enter Dachau you know, and she said he never talked about it. It just never. But, you know, she, but there is that silence that says a lot. I mean, so whatever we as generations later and the ripple effect of whatever happened during that time, whether it's the Vietnam War, the Korean War, that comes down to us, the other generations and to, to our, our descendants. And so it's there. And I think it's good to talk about it because so, you know, I think when you see what's going on in Ukraine on the same battlefields, you know, World War II, it's just, it's like, aren't we learning from, from the past, from history? But <laughs> so I'll ask you another question, which is, Whatever. how is how is Amy holding up while she's been put um, sort of uh, while, while she's waiting to tell the rest of her story? <laughs> Thank you for asking about Amy. She's, um, she's, uh, you know, she's doing fine. She is in New York. She's been uh, getting my edits back when I return home. So I can, you know, work a little bit on the book tour. I will look at that. And um, yeah, I'm really, Amy's fine. She's, we have a tentative title. It's called Murder on the Canal. But I've been asking at every book event, what if people like that, and they kind of have a quizzical look in their face. And then I say, what do you think about murder at La Villette? And they go, yes, yes. We don't know where that is, but that sounds French. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, it's all, you know, this is a water-based death. A murder on the canal could be in Amsterdam, right? So, um, or London. I don't know, murder on La Villette. So that's another, ten I have to broach that. 
So I don't, I don't know. She's doing fine. I, you know, see what my editor says. It's a different book. It's quite a different book for Amy, and uh, I'll be happy to get back to her, to her edits. Yep. Well, the on, same gang. On the same sort of note, uh, we leave uh, Kate Reese at the end of uh, Night Flight to Paris in a bit of an ambiguous situation. And I'm wondering if there might be another follow-up. Well, thank you for asking. You know, I don't know because we're kind of at the end of October 1942. So I've been reading about what's happened in the war in 1943, which had a lot of a lot of things were happening in all fronts in every continent. So again, it's it's possible um, if Kate's Reese's, Kate Reese's skills were required, uh, there may be a conflict she may be involved with. I just kind of have to see. Um, you know, I will say one thing, Nancy. When I wrote about Cairo, it was People say to me on the tour, have you been to Cairo? And I say, well, yes, but not in 1942. <laughs> so you know, it was a different time, but I was in Cairo. I was robbed at the train station, broke, stranded, um, you know, and didn't speak the language. And it was just freaky before cell phones. Okay. So it was all, you know, remember it was different. And and I made a friend. I still have this friend. So, you know, things work out. But I did have this sort of um, reservoir of panic, you know, and fear to draw on for Kate in Cairo because I had been, you know, kind of stranded and lost and outsider as Kate is. And I think that's, you know, I could bring that to her character, you know, and everyone, Sasha, I mean, everyone was an outsider there and they were all, you know, all the British um, you know, the soldiers were just, oh, it was so warm and their money went everywhere and the easy women and they could drink. You know, it was like a holiday for them, whereas other people, it, the war was not a holiday. And Cairo, but it was a great counterpoint because it was, certainly wasn't slogging through the forests of northern Germany or, um, you know, fighting village by village through Sicily and, and the boot of Italy. It was you know, it was very Casablanca-esque, I thought. Thank you, yeah. And, you know, just one note, because I always like to talk about her. There was a woman I met, in, again, early 2000s, um, in her 90s. She had been in the resistance. Um, she was from Lyon, you know, the good food capital. <laughs> and um, and she, we met... And then we sat outside at a cafe near where she lived. I tell you, her Nancy, her skin was gorgeous. Her complexion was 90 years old. Oh, I tell you, oh, not a wrinkle, just natural, just gorgeous. And um, she's, and I said, well, you know, tell me, you know, tell me some more. She had a quad de guerre and all this. And she said, well, one thing she did that, that might interest me is that her husband in Lyon, you know, at the beginning of the war, he was taken as a prisoner of war. So he was gone, you know, at a work camp in Germany, her father, and they had a baby, a toddler, and her father ran a printing press. So she would go sometimes to help him or, and so one day she went on her bike, you know, with the baby, <laughs> the toddler on her back, um, had some, she'd found some eggs on the black market. And so she'd gone to her father and he said, I have to do something, but I can't go. The big order came in. Please do it for me. Take this somewhere. Fine. So he gave her a, a packet 
and she put it in her bike basket and, you know, eggs on top and went off. And it was kind of on the outskirts of Lyon. So she went and she was riding and came to a checkpoint, German checkpoint. And they looked at her and they saw the eggs. They saw the, you know, toddler on her back and they're just, go ahead, go ahead, wave her through. She gets to the rendezvous and a bunch of men appear, you know, they're partisans, they're maquis, you know, the maquisard who are in the countryside living there and doing a little sabotage. And so they met her and they took the package. And of course, it was a bunch of guns, right? <laughs> under the face. <laughs> and, and, she, and I said to her, weren't you scared? I mean, didn't you, you know? And, and I didn't say, how could your father have done that? But, you know, I did. And she said, well, I, I don't know that I was really scared. It's just that I knew something was going on. But I knew that I'm just a woman. I just have my eggs and I have my child, you know, and of course I'm the perfect messenger or whatever. Um, and she said, and I said, but still didn't you get scared? She said, well, we were living under the Germans. Okay. Every night I would hear the jackboots on the cobbles outside of my house. Did food. We had a roof over our head and I hated those Germans. I just hated them walking in front of my house. I hated that everywhere we had to go, we had to show up my ID. I wanted to do something and I was happy to do it and I think that's the mindset that is maybe harder for us to go back and remember it was really different and you got back you know uh, in any way you could even small ways and you know ordinary people were heroes too you know maybe they weren't uh, you know sabotaging and blowing up trains but you know they did things they could do you know and I, I think those stories especially women you know who were doing them because they were at home I love that story because there she was, a baby, you know, strapped to her back with eggs in her basket, bicycling along and completely underestimated. You know, yes, it, it, it was both a blessing and a curse, a blessing for the partisans who were waiting for the guns and and a curse because I'm sure, you know, no one would have hired her to be a CEO um, of a company after the war. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. And yeah, and of course, uh, you know, people like uh, Stepney and they used women because, well, they were available because, right? But but yeah, and, and especially the German mindset, they, they counted on that too, you know? They're totally going to underestimate someone. You know, and Kate is wearing a disguise and made to look middle-aged and with a red cross, you know, like a nurse. That's kind of someone you just ignore, right? I mean, you don't pay much attention to until something catches her out. We can't say what that is. <laughs> <laughs> until Called until she puts nerd. her gun, until she puts her sniper rifle together, and then people pay attention. As it should. Be. <laughs> um, this has been great. I so appreciate your time and uh, talking to you about Kate Reese, about uh, night flight to Paris, and and also what Amy is up to next. And look forward to that. And. Um, I wish you the best on your book tour. I'm sorry I missed your appearance here in Southern California, but I know we'll catch up with each other again someday. Definitely, Nancy. And thank you for inviting me. And it's so fun to talk about the book. And à la prochaine, okay? Okay. <laughs>